Grandstand Cricket. With a splendid innings for New Zealand, but they are all out for 372. Another test is done and dusted. Now it's time for some post-match parlay with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. The Final Word with ABC Grandstand. Hello and welcome to the Final Word podcast. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon from Wellington for the second consecutive week, this time after Australia wrapped up the Trans-Tasman Trophy in just three and a half days. A fairly lacklustre showing from the locals, a, a penetrative clinical performance from the tourists. And Jeff... We're off to Christchurch with the trophy already seated. I hate two test match series. They're not really series, are they? They don't really deserve the term. I think we've had long conversations about this uh, in the past. They're, they're an entree. You know, they're two consecutive things. Do that, does that make a series? I mean, mathematically speaking, do, do you have to have a third thing for it to be a series? Can you trail off a sentence with dot, dot? I, 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 yeah, well, well put. I, I think no, it's just one of those scheduling quirks that means that they try and squash as much international cricket into a already constrained calendar and a series that could have been may have been possibly have been now is not and really that's on account of the fact that New Zealand didn't step up when they needed to from the very get-go lose the toss can Brendan McCullum win a toss against Australia I'd suggest not likewise Steve Smith has the rub of the green at every possible opportunity and he got to bowl on that wonderful green top on day one he said he'd never seen a pitch so green in his life I think we got carried away with that though as we've done about 40 times before every time there's a touch of hue about a a test match surface we go oh my god it's gonna seem everywhere it's gonna be incredible um and really it wasn't I mean it was there was a bit of seam movement there was some good accurate bowling and there was some pretty poor batting on day one from New Zealand and then the pitch flattened out as it has tended to do historically here at Wellington and got a lot easier to bat on uh, through days three and four particularly. Yeah, that's right. I think it was more to do with the fact that Australia, had they been forced to bat first, it would have been the first time they had to bat first in conditions like that since Trent Bridge. And there's this enormous, I guess, baggage around their neck now after those consecutive times they got sent in at Edgbaston and Trent Bridge last August where they need to demonstrate they can play the moving ball in those conditions. And in the end, you're probably right. It didn't move an awful lot, but it moved just enough and there was a huge amount of bounce that played a role with wickets. It was more about bounce than it was hooping around corners, I felt. Yeah, but there's an interesting uh, point that we were looking at, which was, say, imagine the third session on day one was the first session on day one, where mm. you know a couple of Australian wickets go early, Burns is strangled down the leg side, Warner has a stupid shot and gets caught at slip. You know, uh, The Tremors might have run through the team if that had been within the first five overs of the day rather than after they'd already shot New Zealand out. Oh, absolutely. I think that if Australia had it batted first, this would have been a, a far greater test. They did receive the best of the conditions. They did receive the best of the umpiring decisions as well, which we'll come to later in the pod. But initially, on morning one, I love the fact that it was Josh Hazelwood and Peter Siddle. Who would have thought those two bowlers could bowl in tandem together for Australia back six months ago when speed was everything, when Darren Lehman made it very clear that if you weren't 140 k's, you were out. And now these two bowlers who are legit fast medium, they don't get to 140. Hazelwood seldom, Siddle never these days. They're, they're, they're exponents of their craft, which uh, which is about landing the ball in the right spot consistently, and that was the defining part of that first morning. I guess the concerning thing is that you know someone like Siddle, who's had a reputation as being a workhorse and a bowl all day guy, has been struggling with injuries since you know he's had this um, this opening to come back into the Test team where it wasn't expected. You know, Johnson retires, Stark gets injured, um, Pattinson's always on the injury list, so is Cummins. You know Siddle comes back in in Adelaide. Uh, sort of injured his ankle there, has back spasms in this test match. You you want him to be that durable bowler, but it's a question of whether he can hold himself together. The other bloke they brought in, the third option, was Jack Bird. Now, Jackson Bird, I quite liked that selection. It didn't 
go strictly to plan. But again, I like the idea that they, they saw the conditions and they played accordingly. They played an 11 which fit with that, which was a massive criticism of the selectors back in England. I think a worthy one as well. Yeah, I, I don't mind a selection that doesn't work as long as it has sound theory behind it. it. Not everything is going to work. Not every... I mean, any selection is a gamble. You know, you can pick an absolute plonker and they might just have a day out and, and then you'll be hailed as a genius when you're not. And it, it, may, it may still have been the wrong call. Um, you can pick someone who's perfect for the conditions and they... May have the opponents get on top of them. Martin Guptill gave Jackson Bird a bit of a thrashing early on that um, first day and, you know, didn't end up damaging Australia overall, but it did damage Jackson Bird's first innings. Um, and then he he found his rhythm a bit better in the second, but still finished the match with only one wicket. So that siddle injury is, is really the only lifeline for him to possibly stay in the team if Pattinson comes up. Yeah, which it looks like Pattinson will, and we'll come back to this in, in greater depth later, but it looks like James Pattinson will be available for Christchurch. But what I liked about the, the whole setup was the, 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 the fact that Siddle especially was a bowler who was not selected when the four the three guys who were given the responsibility in, in England went for plenty. It wasn't just bowling, it wasn't just batting in English conditions which posed a problem for Australia. It was bowling in English conditions. And Josh Hazelwood said as much at the end of day one when he said that he fell into the trap in England of trying to bowl what he described as the miracle ball every ball rather than doing pretty much playing to his strengths, which is bowling a consistent line and length and effectively boring a batsman out. So I like that Siddle and Hazelwood were able to combine and couple in that. In that, in that enterprise, because that was what generated the wickets. It was that subtle movement across the left-handers, which earned three edges. It was the uh, the bowling in that channel. It wasn't balls that hooped around corners and took middle stump out of the ground. Yeah, I mean, that was a delivery a delivery like that, that sort of disciplined channel ball that, that Siddle got Kane Williamson with in the mm. first innings, that inside edge. And even and that could have been, and that could have been, that was a massive turning point. Kane Williamson was, was, was playing beautifully for his first... Uh, for his first 20 minutes at the crease, and he gets a uh, plays a glorious stroke off Peter Siddle's first ball on the up through cover. It was just a stunning off drive, and then next ball he tried to repeat the dose and got the big inside edge. And Peter Neville took a he's probably his best catch for Australia, a diving chance to his left at full stretch, and got it in the webbing of the gloves. And that was again, you know, you could hear Peter Siddle. I love his guttural roars, like you know, you little beauty, that's a little beauty when he's running down the wicket. And you just knew that. that did little... he actually say that? Yeah, he did. Yeah. Is that a direct quote? No, well, it might have been you little beauty, that's a beauty. Was Was he eating a lamington while he did that? Yeah, I just I just love Peter Siddle. What can I say? He's everything I want to be <laughs> as a human being, especially his 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 his, um, his his dietary choices that are so often reflected upon, which is such a contrast to his you know massive tattoo and all the rest of it, and the you little beauty, as we said before. So, I'm a big fan of Peter Siddle. He's, he's the modern the modernist. Australian, uh, nuanced, nuanced character, variety, range. <laughs> you know the different, the different layers. Lesser, lesser lamington perhaps than a vanilla slice. You know, which graduates through layers of pastry, uh, that weird kind of snot block substance, pastry and icing. All those layers. I don't know where you've got to, but I like it. So Australia knock over New Zealand for 183 by the end of two sessions. Nathan Lyon picks up the easiest three wickets of his life. Oh, wasn't it ever? Three for 32 off about four balls. I, you know, if he wasn't taking a wicket, he was going over the fence. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't <laughs> need to do much. He Trent Bolton code is going nuts at the end, which will, you know, they're lusty uh, batting at the bottom of the but list. How was that, how was that, uh, that catch from Kawaja as well to get rid yeah, of Trent Bolton? Yeah, T20. They say, you've said, I always chip you for this. You say Kawaja can't field. Man, that man can jump. He jumps over the rope, brings it back into the cell, back back to himself. He uh, he's got and it all. Ali ooped it to himself. Yeah. If you're wondering, he was down at long off. Trent Bolt had just hit a couple of sixes, um, very very cleanly too. Nice strikes. Pretty good number eleven, got, Trent Bolt. Very good number eleven. Got got all of uh, the last one as well. It was going for six. Kawaja got up, got his hands up, snared the ball, knew that he was going over the rope, did the old uh, very very casual, flicked it up, went out, came back in the field of play, and took the rebound calmly as you like. 
reinforcing that the, the thing that was meant to hold him back from short form cricket, 2020 cricket, shouldn't going forward anyway. Australia bat Joe I didn't Burns. Say, I didn't say he couldn't catch. I said he couldn't move. He's a plotter. He's very, <laughs> very slow across the turf. You know, it's like a, a Clydesdale grazing Clydesdale going to field the ball. But, you know, if he makes a billion runs every game, you can't hold that against him. Which is what he did when he came out when the score was one for naught when he entered when Joe Burns got strangled by Tim Southey in the first over. Joe Burns, Jeff, I just... I've always hated that term. You know, we're talking about cr- cricket terms that we hate. Strangled. What does that even mean? But you have to be... If you're caught down the league side, you've got to be strangled down the league side. It's part of... It's in the law. But it's in, it's in the laws of the game. The law this, of the land. This dismissal shall be described as a strangle. Correct. Law of 38.2. Exactly. You've it's got just it. caught behind. You're just caught behind. But it, it's got cares? that... No, I, I like strangle. What does it mean? I think it's one of my more favourite terms. What does terms. it mean? How, how, is it, how is it a strangle? It, it's, it's like you've been deprived of oxygen. Right. I think that's the suggestion. Like deprived just, of room. Yes, you, you're that's kind right. Of, uh, you can't see me acting this out, but you know I'm bringing the bat across my body up yes, to the arm. Yes, you ran out of space. Right. But Something like that. It just seems unnecessarily violent. But it is, you know? but it is such a. Ter- it is the worst way to get out in cricket. Well, getting just, caught down a side. I, I think, think it is. I think the worst way to get out in cricket would be being hit in the face and then falling over onto your stumps. No, I, I, I reckon that would be the worst. At least that would be novelty value. This is. This is an ugly way to go. And that's the way you went. And Jay Benz, I just think that you hear comments from the Australian management and they always talk about what great Nick Shaw Marsh is in. And he did make 182 <laughs> they, not out. They talk about that all of the time. They've been this talking about po- that they, for 15 years. But this is kind of my point, right? Like the standard position is that Shaw Marsh is in good Nick. And let, let's be fair, he is in good Nick at the moment. We can't dispute this point. And Joe Burns, I just don't feel like he's got himself to a point where despite the pair of hundreds and the one in Melbourne was much better than the one in Brisbane the first day first innings hundred when it, they were actually quite challenging conditions there in Melbourne on Boxing Day yeah but I don't think they'll take much hesitation in punting him or at least moving him down the list later in his career like he started at number six he was moved to opening he hasn't always batted up the top of the list for Queensland I, I just feel as though that I wouldn't be I would look put it this way I wouldn't be staggered and completely I wouldn't fall off my chair if Sean Marsh plays in Christchurch I wouldn't fall off my chair if Sean Marsh played anywhere at any time in any Australian cricket team. It could be 2038, and I, and I wouldn't be entirely surprised if Sean Marsh were brought in just to have a kind of Colin Cowdery or Gallop at the, at the top of the order. You know, regardless of who the selectors are, they've all been drinking the same Kool-Aid. But um, I don't think it's going to happen. I, I disagree with you on this one. Burns, they've, they've got to stick with Burns for the long term. I'm not saying um, they shouldn't stick with Burns. I'm, I'm, not saying, I'm team Burns on this one. I'm I just, not saying I just you're feel... saying they shouldn't. I'm saying that they will stick with him. Well, let's hope so. In any event, he was out for nothing. David Warner, you said it was a stupid shot before. It, it, Steve Smith said in the lead up <laughs> to the test match, he gave one piece of advice. It yep. was, you need to take longer to play yourself in when you play yep. in New Zealand. Conditions aren't like Australia. They're not roads. You need to take a while to play yourself in. He also said it wrote in, wrote in a column uh, on, on the CA website, um, I'm going to be emphasising to the guys again and again that we need to adapt. And, and, adapt <laughs> to the conditions, adapt to the bowling, and adapt to the pitches. So David Warner... It's not a know, direct quote, but I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. David Warner, within uh, seven balls of entering the crease, plays the most outlandish fly outside the off stump, about two kilometres between bat and pad. And, you know, that was the end of that chapter. Two for five, bringing together Steve Smith and Usman Khawaja. Now, Smith was dropped early. He was shelled in the teens by Mark Craig at Slip, who had an absolute nightmare of a match. And that seemed to reset Steve Smith. He batted pretty well through the day, but I wasn't entirely surprised when he was caught and bowled. On, on 71, about 20 minutes from stumps while Kawaja did as he plays, because he just didn't look quite as fluent as he has in the past. One of three caught and bowled dismissals in I know, right? Innings. Have you seen three caught and bowled in How about Mitchell Marsh getting caught and bowled twice in a week? Yeah, twice in twice, twice in, in six days. Consecutive games. 
uh, consecutive innings at international level. Um, and, anyway. the, and the Corey Anderson caught and bowled, which was flat out the best caught and bowled I've ever seen. The and the Trent that... Bolt one earlier, and we'll come to this too, these, these wonderful caught. We saw two astonishing caught and bowls in the Australian innings. But anyway. The Trent Bolt one was good, as in, but you know, it was played back to his right. He was in the follow through. He had to uh, get a bit of a dive in. But the... No, 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 no. The thing about the Trent Bolt thing was getting his arm back up again. Because think yeah. about where he would have been in his follow through. His body True. would have been quite low. It was getting the mid up. And his legs yep. were, you know, uh, spread eagle, if you like, or uh, we doing almost like a starfish jump. And that, that wasn't, that was pretty yeah, tidy. He, he did a midair star jump, and that's what made it look spectacular in that, um, you know, the photos have him midair. But actually, he got the ball before he went midair. He had, sort of had to had to get his feet off the ground after he took the ball to hold on to it. The Anderson one, it's driven back at him. He dives forward at the ball, catches it in reverse. So he's, his in... left arm has come over the ball and caught up with it as it's going past him. He's caught it and then done a forward roll yeah, on the pitch. And Full he, somersault. Yeah, and he stuck the dive too. And he, popped he, up on his feet. He stuck the landing. The Russian judge has given it 10, the, the works. He, it was a, it was an excellent piece of acrobatics. I, I think it is the best caught and bowled I've seen. Like, no caveat. I think it's the best caught. Given the way he caught the ball, that low to the ground with his hand ran the wrong way. Catching it backwards, having to catch up to the ball as it, as it passes you. You know, it was like sort of one of those um, little paddle shots where the ball's already passed the batsman and they've, they've got to catch up and tap it from behind. Mm. Um, <clears throat> that's what he was doing, but with a catch. This is in the modern game. Another part of the modern game, unfortunately, a repeated part of the modern game, is the front foot no ball rule being applied in all sorts of weird and wonderful ways. And umpire Richard Illingworth provided the most significant moment of the match with a decision that befuddles the best of us, which was a, a front foot no ball he called, which Adam Voges left. It hits the top of off stump. Doug Bracewell bowls him with a peach in the last over of day one. He would have been gone for seven with Australia still 36 behind on, on, on the first night. And four wickets in, would have been four wickets, four wickets down. down. And who knows that alternate reality? We spoke about it yesterday <laughs> about, you know, you can never really project what would have happened in the absence of the counterfactual. No. But nevertheless, that was a, a huge turning point. And, and yeah, we just need to invest some time saying it is just nonsense that with all the automation that takes place in international cricket, all the money that's swelling around International in, sport in general. In, indeed. How are we in a situation where the guy is expected to adjudicate what's going on at the business end after having to recorrect his eyes from looking down at the front foot when it is being scrutinised by cameras every single ball? Surely those cameras can be deployed and those third and fourth officials can be deployed to help get this right, because that's, that's a farce. And also, how are you having an umpire ruling on, say, half a centimetre of the back of a bowler's shoe? Yeah, when it takes him like five while, minutes on the replay. While he's standing behind the bowler, a good few metres behind, behind sure. the stumps. Um, he's not looking at it laterally. He's not side on to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you, you know, you don't have a mid-off umpire looking at the line. Well, this is the he, thing, right? Because back in the old days, the back foot rule was such that with the umpire standing next to the back line, you could pretty safely make that assessment. Now, I'm not saying it's a better rule because it meant the umpires had to stand side on to, to measure it. But nevertheless, I think that the front foot no ball rule as it's administered has that problem. And it has the problem that the, the cameras are scrutinising it to the point where when they refer decisions retrospectively upstairs, it takes them two or three minutes to come to a you know, comfortable conclusion. How can an umpire do it instantaneously and expect it to be right? I mean, people say, just call them when they're well over. What? So we'll accept a little bit of a no ball, but not a... Yeah. You know, it, 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 it's all basically the long and the short of it is it needs to be automated. The ICC need to invest some money in getting this right because that Adam Voges incident, he went on to make 239 and it was a, an incredibly... Uh, diligent innings in as far as he, he batted through some really tough periods to prosper later on. But what a different game of cricket we could have had. But, you know, Richard, licensed to Illingworth, um, pulled the gun out a couple of times. He called another wrong no ball as well. Yeah, uh, Jack Bell. I'm not, I'm not piling in on the umpire. I don't think it's his fault. Well, he made the mistake, but that can happen. 
I think what's happened is you know, we, we've had a lot of complaints about umpires not calling no balls because we've had, you know, say James Pattinson in, in the uh, MCG test getting wickets off no balls and then complaining that the umpires hadn't been calling him until he took wickets, but, you know, he must have been bowling them beforehand, but bowlers don't know because umpires don't want to call them. Somebody's put a rocket up the umpires oh, and of said, course. you have to start calling no balls live in, in the flesh. So they've tried to do it, and, of course, they've started getting it wrong. If you've got side on, you've got side on replays. You could have a side on camera on that line the whole time. You could have the third and fourth umpires splitting the duties between them of watching it live, or you could have a kind of laser style um, tennis foot fault, um, which is incredibly accurate. Where you know, if, if a micron of the shoe is in the wrong spot when a serve is sent down, being off to go see alarm foot fault, you you serve again. And and the thing, I don't actually think it should be the third and fourth umpire on reflection because even they would not have the benefit of the slow motion replays, etc. The only way to do this at the Olympics in the long jump and the triple jump, they have technology that can adjudicate this. How can we be playing international cricket, as I said before, with all the money that's swilling around in it and not find the ability to fix this up? Because it really is a blight on the game at the moment. But he made the most of his chance. Adam Bow just came out on day two and he was scrappy. He only made 34 in his first 100 balls while Usman Khawaja... You know, just batted in a mesmerising fashion. 25 of the best boundaries you'll see. He just plundered that cover boundary over and over again. But that partnership was the, the defining stand of the game. Two things. Well, I can't understand why they didn't just put a deep cover in because that would have fixed that problem. <laughs> um, they conceded 100 runs pretty much through that region from Kawaja. But the really impressive thing about the Voges innings is when you've got a guy at the other end batting so easily, so fluently and making it look so good, it must be really hard to put that out of your mind and bat ugly like he did you know goddamn ugly innings really scraped through um looked terrible every time he scored a run it looked like an accident every time he made a run but his defense was good he kept out good balls um and and when they strayed when he got one down league side or one wide of the stumps you know he glanced at it or he cut it and he and he got his runs and he started getting his score up he goes on to make 200 odd yeah he gets a reprieve on seven but you've still got to make a double century after that, which doesn't happen every day. Yeah, 232 chanceless runs thereafter is a fair achievement, regardless of how you cut it up. But uh, yeah, he didn't really look good until he received a couple of long hops and a full toss in the 90s and scampered to 100. And looking at his numbers now, uh, not long after 100, when he reached 172 on the cusp of stumps, he was the first man to go through a 100. Not the first man, sorry. We, uh, he, there'll be others who made hundreds on debut, but he, in, the, in the amount of innings he's played, uh, an, an average over 100, of course, overtaking Dob Rabbit in the process, being called um, Bradham, Bradman Voges and all his hoopla on the back of the paper and had a bit of fun with that. He felt very uncomfortable about it and he felt rather relieved when he was dismissed, saying mm. that having his average drop below 100 back to the, the land of the mere mortals was something... With 97. That, with 97 yeah. was, was something that provided him with a fraction more comfort. But on 19 test innings, he's one innings away from formally being registered with an average as far as what statisticians adjudicate as the, as the benchmark. And mm-hmm. even if he made a blob next week, and yep. you know the, he's going to have a, a ridiculous average. He's going to finish with some just astonishing career numbers. And, and, and I don't know how people will evaluate him in the history books, but I hope they look at him fondly because his story is a wonderful one after coming into the side at 35 years of age. Yeah, I think the really funny stuff is, you know, obviously we write about this and you get all these people going, oh, you idiots, he's not as good as Bradman. And you go, well, nobody has ever said that. Nobody's saying that. What we're saying is this number is more than this number. Now, that's just a thing you can say. That's just an observation you can make about uh, statistics. Uh, A number is higher than another number, unless the two numbers are the same, in which case, look, there's probably some realm of imaginary mathematics or whatever where they can (laughs) prove that this is wrong and quantum state two numbers that have different values at the same time or whatever (laughs) it is. But, you know, in a basic arithmetical kind of grocery shopping, putting coins in the parking meter sort of way, um, numbers are bigger than other numbers or they're the same. 
And if you say one's bigger, it doesn't actually mean anything other than saying that. But that you're right. to put that on the record. No, I'm glad you have because there was a lot of blowback when we <laughs> wrote about this. There's just a lot of idiocy about it. Yeah. Oh, call image good as Bradman. Yeah, Bradman made his runs over 20 years. Oh, you know, yeah, we know. It, it's, it's a number. I got pounded on Twitter about this stuff. And, you know, fair enough. I'm not trying to say he's as good as Bradman, but, like, maybe he's as good as Bradman. Who knows? But maybe he's as good as Andy Gantome. And Andy Gantome was stitched up. They just didn't like him. There was more at play there. Andy Gantome, of course, who made a century on debut for the West Indies in 1948, never to play again. One innings, made 112, and was dismissed, thus recording the highest test average ever of 112, which stands to this day, 1948. What a time. I'm glad he's featured on the final word. So there's one more point on Usman Khawaja. He eventually was dismissed when the score was on 299. I just want to, like, I've he made 140, and I don't think I've seen many better innings live. I mean, he said it was his most important contribution for Australia so far. He's now made um, first innings hundreds in four consecutive times at bat, noting that, of course, he didn't bat in Sydney due to the quasi-washout uh, um, there when they didn't play, when the, when the batting, you know, the, the top order shuffled down in order to give Mitchell Marsh and Peter Neville a hit. That's just a, a you know, validation of the selectors genuinely getting that right. Kawaja's numbers didn't necessarily warrant him coming straight back into the Australian side, but that's why being a selector is more than just averages, more than just numbers. It's identifying someone like Kawaja has that inherent ability, and he's just taken that chance and ran with it. And now you can't imagine an Australian side with him not playing in it, thus the uproar last week when he wasn't picked in the one-day side. But well, crazily just... in any format. Now imagine saying even a year ago, Usman Kawaja is going to be a key part of your T20 side. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, he's now integral to every Australian eleven in the same way that Steve Smith and David Warner are. He's reached that yeah. level, I think, now as far as just the way he's batting at the moment. It's just supreme. You run out of superlatives. His driving but, is just astonishing. But previously, if you saw him, you know, say you'd see him on a Big Bash team sheet even even last summer, and it was like seeing, um, you know, Peter Neville on a Big Bash team sheet or Chris Rogers or you know Ed Cowan, these kind of players who are not associated with the fast form of the game. And you go, oh, that's a bit odd. Well, I, yeah, I guess they could play T20. Um, but now he can make 100 off 45 balls if he wants and, and not hit an ugly shot on the way. When he was out, when the score was 299, Australia were already well over 100 ahead and the game was effectively over. But the lower order did a good job. I don't want to leave them unmentioned in our discussion. Mitch Marsh made a duck, caught involved in that aforementioned crazy Trent Bolt catch. But Peter Neville, 32, put on nearly a ton with Voges. And likewise, Siddle, who put on 99 with him, made 49 of them himself. That's, just, that's, again, illustrative of a couple of guys who are mature cricketers realising the job's not completely done. It's helping voters get to that double hundred. Ultimately, it was Nathan Lyon, another, again, mature, responsible, committed cricketer who took him from 192 to, to that double hundred on, on morning three. And, and, and they all played important hands with the bat, showing their broader worth. P-City, uh, a thousand test runs. Oh, the, 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 hundredth, the hundredth person to do it for Australia. Yep. Do you like that? Uh, I do. And that double of, say, 200 test wickets and a thousand runs has only been done by about eight players. He's I the think. eighth. Yeah. He's the eighth. So um, it just, again, it says he, he was gone. He was stuck on 192 wickets. He was never going to play for Australia again. And now, despite the fact that he's got a back spasm, which might keep him out of the next test, and he has a few issues with um, persistent injuries, he... He remains a vital cog, as Jeff, you wrote, I think, the other day. He's the bowler you build and attack around, not your third-string bowler. Yeah, well, I mean, he should be. He should be the the foundation, the base, the layer, and then you you have your extravagances on top of that. And he can bat. I, I was commentating a, 
the match in India in 2013 where he made two 50s um, in the yes. test match, top scored in both innings when Australia were being absolutely mauled by Ravi Ashwin and Siddle uh, cast off his defensive mode and went, I think I'm just going to hit him over cover a lot and did. And he ended, it off. he ended up falling in the nervous 40s for about like the 27th time in his career. He was out for 49 trying to force a ball over mid on. Uh, the partnership was halted at 99. But again, wonderful hand from those two. And ultimately, Australia were bowled out with a lead of 379. It's a gigantic Probably enough. Probably enough. But we, yeah. I, I, found, I, I was actually quite happy that Smith didn't declare at the start of morning three. As we saw in Hobart, he was happy to burn Voges triple hundred that day. I thought he might burn his double hundred on day three. But this time he gave him the chance to bat through. Yeah, but, um, you know, the not out at the end would have kept him. He would have been averaging about 104 at that point. Jackson Bird, surely he just should have played a, a late cut and whoopsie, just cut his own stumps over. Surely. At that point, just would, let, give, would, give your man the not out. It would have made the task easier for Christchurch because he now needs 133 in his tw- in his 20th innings or yeah. 33 not out, which is probably less likely to stay in that 100 marker. But anyway, let's move away from that. We've talked about Voges in the 100 marker so much uh, over the last few days. I think people are the probably hate mail will flood in. just about sick of it. What I do want to talk about, though, is Australia's wonderful effort with the ball in the second innings. Far less glamorous than the first innings. They didn't bowl him out for 183 that time around. They bowled him out for 327, and yet it took 104 and a half overs. But the best of the batting conditions and the way they did it and the strangulation that took place, that word again, strangle, in the in the second half of day three, um, it was incredibly impressive, especially from Josh Hazelwood, Mitchell Marsh and Nathan Lyon. Uh, you know, the maturity again just to bowl in those channels because New Zealand got off to a flyer. Martin Guptill, I guess he took the approach that his white ball game is the only thing that could save him against Australia. He has a terrible record against Australia in test cricket. And he was looking good, though. On 45, he was smashing him everywhere. Three mm. boundaries off Peter Siddle's first over. And it looks like Guptill might have been you know, ready to finally launch into a meaningful contribution against Australia. But he, but he was held up. I think that was his second highest score against Australia. He's made it. His top score is a 54 or something. I don't think he's got know. a 50. I think he's got. I think he might have won. I, I, in any I, event, I was looking yeah. at this, but you know, basically, he's he averages um, something like 18 against Australia before this Test match. Um, not sure how it's washed up after um, the numbers have come in from this game, but it, I think he had to take that approach. He's mm. a he's such a good white ball player. He's made you know what was that score 91 off 33 balls sure. or something yep. earlier this summer. Um, incredible attacking batsman comes into Test matches, pokes and prods around, tries to look like a test player and gets out for 12. Yeah, it's that cliche to play your natural game. And, you know, people say it all the time, and what does it actually mean? But Not much. But, but, but I guess in this case, you can see where it can be applied. Like Guptill trying to play a game that's counter to the way yeah. he would play if he was doing what, what comes natural has been his handbrake before. But he did look good for 45. But for reasons that aren't quite clear to me, or I don't think anyone at the ground, he charged Nathan Lyons, spoon one up in the air, and that was the end of that chapter. But Kane Williamson was looking pretty good too, you know. Um, he... He hit boundary, three three consecutive boundaries or three boundaries in the space of a couple of overs, I should say, to, to get underway. And he looked in pretty good nick. But that's when Australia started this clamp down. Um, either side of T, 68 balls, 22 runs, zero boundaries. It was Josh Hazelwood, it was Mitchell Marsh, it was Nathan Lyon, uh, a little bit of Peter Siddle before he hurt his back. They just put the brakes on. They, they just were relentless. And that's when... Josh Hazelwood finally got Williamson out. He stalled him completely, and he and he just probed and probed and probed until he got that little prod outside the off stump, and that was it. Once Williamson was gone, really, it was test match over. It was always going to be over in four days. Mm, and one of our New Zealand colleagues was noting at the time that Williamson was fidgeting a bit at the crease, which he doesn't normally do um, in the few balls before he got out, you know, just, just fiddling with the pad or doing some gardening, you know, stuff that's uncharacteristic. He was uncomfortable against Hazelwood. Um, and, it, you know, it got them to this position where, well, McCullum came out with 
uh, towards the end of the day and needed to try to survive um, the end of day three. Yeah, well, McCullum and Williamson had made a triple and a double century, respectively, in very similar situations to this. New Zealand may have fancied batting a lot more time than they actually did against India in 2014. They made 680 in the third innings after conceding a 135-lead deficit 135 run rather deficit on the first innings and similarly against Sri Lanka last year they came back from like a 240 run deficit to win the game after Williamson made 242 not out in the second dig so you know they're, they're, it wasn't without context and BJ Watling um, twice featured in world record six wicket partnerships on that ground in these yep. last two games so you know they, they, they may have thought in the best of the conditions at which it was it was a beautiful time to bat on the third um, afternoon Greg Baum noted the ball just did not move at all until it started reversing so they, there was a time there when it looked like maybe they could have set Australia some sort of chase in the fourth innings but it wasn't to be after Williamson went out and you you wanted that you know you wanted that for the story it was McCullum's 100th test match you wanted the fairy tale you wanted um, you know at least that that close finish and and he was out there just trying to get through to the stumps last over of the day Mitchell Marsh who's just got that extra pace um, and he's, he's picked up pace over the last Six to nine months, quite consistently, um, ripped one through him, nailed him on the pad. You know, McCullum reviewed it, but it was always going to be gone. So, and that key difference, last over of the day on day one, Voges reprieved. Last over of the day on day three, McCullum nailed by the umpire. I'm glad you brought up Mitchell Marsh's pace. We spoke about it on the final word after the Melbourne Test match. He's a legit 140-plus operator now. He's no longer... When he, when he first started playing international cricket, he bowled straight 130, and you need to do a little bit at 130. You need to be Peter Siddle. If yep. you're going to bowl 130, but he's not anymore. He just yeah. found he, he bends his back, and especially I was super impressed on the third afternoon how much you could just tell how much he was bending his back and, and really getting deep into the pitch. And it was hard graft out there. Kept getting hitting the high notes on the on the on the speed radar gun, and he really earned that wicket of McCullum, just as he did the next morning as well. So New Zealand come into the fourth day still 201 runs away from making Australia bat again, and he did the same thing to Corey Anderson. He just was relentless with his pace and accuracy and caught him on the pads. Uh, leg before for nothing after 22 balls. So Corey Anderson, a bloke who's made a 36-ball international century, gets gets sent away for a duck after 22 balls, which is a little bit, I think, about, the again, this this relentless pressure that Australia applied with the ball. Yeah, also that Corey Anderson's been in horrific nick, really. The last two one-day games um, and both innings in this test match, he's just been abysmal in, in all of them. You know, batted in the one-day as like he was batting in the test match, not scoring, couldn't get off strike, couldn't do anything, um, and eventually gave it away. So, you know, his catching's in form, but his batting's certainly not. They, it, it was a bit of a frolic, really, day yeah, four. There, it wasn't, was. there wasn't much on it, but it was basically just have some fun, you know, let the tail enders try to bulk their numbers up a bit. Well, yeah, basically we had, there was two parts of the day, wasn't there? So there was the, there was the first session or the, the, the morning session where Australia took three wickets and they still had to work pretty hard for their for their, for their their supper. There was, a, there was a, you know, I think Nathan Lyon benefited from an enormous amount of spin through the gate. And, you know, Nathan Lyon. He was Lyon, ripping it. He Nathan was really Lyon. turning it. I used an analogy or a comparison at the time. It's, you know, the it's like the amount of space he's bowling the ball into at the moment is probably a one foot by one foot area. He just keeps hitting it over and over again. It's like hitting triple 20 on the dartboard over and over and over again. And he's just got this down to a fine art. But when you're bowling and ripping it that much, it's like bowling wrist spin. Like that's the thing that's lost about off spin. When, when you're... Bowling little doorknobs, yeah, you can place them pretty easily. He's not bowling doorknobs. His fingers are splayed as wide as they can be, and he's absolutely ripping them. You see the revs on the ball as they're coming down. This is not an easy craft, and the fact that he can be so consistent yet have these subtle variations of flight to try and bring the batsman forward and draw them back in the crease, that ball to bowl Watling spun an absolute mile straight through the gate, straight to his YouTube highlights reel. Mm. Um and again, I think he really earned that third wicket. It was, and he got the fourth one at the end as well. But that was the one he really earned and really toiled for over the over the morning session. 
Um, and, and to get Watling, you know, as you said, was involved in those massive partnerships last two times out. Um, that was near and important. And, and yeah, they would have been worried about him, but knocked him off. Jacksonburg got one. Yeah, I was glad to see Jacksonburg get in the book because, again, he bolted. With the older ball, they got it to reverse quite a bit. They, they, Steve Smith spoke after the game about how they got quite lucky at the end of day three when one side of the ball got really roughed up from a big cut shot by, I think it was Williamson, actually, about halfway through the day. And that enabled them to get some reverse swing. And that was what Bird displayed when he got finally got the chance on day three. And he slipped one through the debutant Henry Nichols, who made 58. And he was good. I like Nichols. I think he's the sort of guy that New Zealand could build around in the next couple of years when McCullum's no longer there and, and they need to find another top-order prospect. I think they've pretty much found it in in that man, H. Nichols. He, he looks a compact player. He's he's plucky in as far as he's he's always coming down the crease of the spinners mm. on debut. I mean, you know, you, you could afford to be conservative in your first time out, but he wasn't that. And, and you know, Bird got him in the end, but I think it was a, a valuable contribution and, and one that we'll remember for a while. He looks calm, I think, is, is the key thing. Um, for a, a young player, hasn't played very much. That first one day at Auckland, he, he played very well in that case, yeah. you know, sort of having to fill in when, was it Williamson was out early and, uh, and, That's right. and he had to kind of take the Williamson job, you know, the left-handed Williamson, um, and fill in for him and be that kind of... Um, reliable linchpin in, in that middle order that the rest of them could build around, and he did that well. Now, after lunch, Jeff, I know you had a bit of fun with this yesterday, but this is when this was the, the the final chapter of the game, and it, and it was and it was in good style. They made 86 runs in 87 balls, New Zealand for their final three wickets, principally their final two wickets because mm-hmm. they lost a wicket in the first over after lunch. But Tim Southey and Trent Bolt, they're now world record holders. Finally, we got to see Tim Southey come off. Now he's been he's such a frustrating batsman because he's pretty good. Um, and he's always been quite a good slogger, but he but he never stays in very long. The last couple of years, he seemed to have lost his slogging ability as well. He was just having a wallop and getting out for you know two or four or ten or whatever it was. Um, made 48 in this instance, creamed uh, quite a few sixes over from Nathan Lyon particularly. I like that they kept Lyon on and Lyon kept tossing it up, saying I'll get you eventually, and of course he did. Um, Saudi holding out on 48, but. Uh, now holds the world record for the most sixes hit by a number 10 batsman, having already set the world record for the most sixes hit by a number 9 batsman. And then out comes Trent Bolt and breaks the record for the most sixes hit by a number 11 batsman. So between them, they've got the whole tail covered. And that was that was a huge six from Bolt, the final one over long on. That was mammoth over the sight screen. And as for Southey, I mean, he's got considerably more sixes than test matches played with 58 sixes. As Charlie Reynolds, our colleague from the UK, pointed out, he's got... More sixes than AB de Villiers in a hundred fewer Test matches. That's just crazy. Like hundred fewer that, innings, I think. Yeah, what is that? So fewer innings rather. He's yes, passed yes. passed de Villiers one more six in a hundred fewer Test innings. Um, but yeah, fifty eight uh, sixes from forty seven matches. Now I did a little bit of digging on this. Um, I mean, he's already twenty fourth on the list of all time six hitters, having played about half as many games as most of them, or you know, a third in the case of someone like Jai Wardner, who you know got sixty odd of her hundred and sixty matches or whatever it was. Um, not many players, very, very few players in Test history have hit more sixes than they have played Test matches. Uh, and those players are Gilchrist, who hit 100 sixes from 96 Tests. Makes sense. Chris Cairns, 87 from 62. Mm. Mm. Misbah, 67 from 61. God. God love him. Um, Southey, 58 from 47. Shia Dafridi has this 52 sixes <laughs> from 27 Tests. <laughs> And, uh, May he play forever. And, of oh. course, Mohamed Rafiq from Bangladesh, 34 sixes from 33 tests. So that's the list. Uh, that's it. That's that's all of them. Um, you know, there may be someone out there who played one test and hit two sixes. But, you know, th- as far as anyone who's hit more than about 20, um, that's that's all of them. So Saudi is, is right up there in terms of 
uh, well, really only trailing Afridi in terms of that percentage, I reckon. I was glad to see Mitchell Marsh get the last wicket. He got his man bolt in the end. He picked up three wickets. Nathan Lyon, four. Josh Hazelwood, two. Jackson Bird, one. It was a great team effort. Australia ended up winning the match by an innings and 52 runs. It was a emphatic display. Now, Jeff, before we go, we should really talk about New Zealand because by my by my take, this is the end of a an abysmal year for them against Australia in the context of games that really, really matter. Now, you can talk about the World Cup group game at Auckland. You can talk about the limited overs international at Hamilton last week where they won the final. But the ones that really mattered to them more than anything else, the World Cup, the first test in Brisbane, and the first test in Wellington. And the the anti-climax after the build-up, especially after winning that one-day series earlier in the week, it just it, there's a disconnect between what they should be producing against Australia in the biggest moments and what they're delivering at the moment. And I think it's a it's a disappointment not just for their team and and their followers, but you know, I mean, people like us, we're we're Australians, but we want to see good cricket. We want to see contests. We we want to see close matches. And and we've kept geeing up New Zealand and going, mm. oh, they're about to do it. They're on the verge. Oh, and and we'll find a we'll find ten good reasons about why they're about to um roll over Australia in whatever this latest edition of the rivalry is. And each time it, it, there's it's not panic, but it's a kind of resignation. You know, a few things go wrong and they go, ah, oh, guess we're losing this one, which is not something you see from New Zealand against anyone else. They've they've won matches from impossible positions the last few years. They've made a an absolute um, trademark of that of never giving up and and having some amazing turnarounds, some saved tests, some one tests against Australia. You know, they get shot out on day one and they seem to go, oh well, that's it, we're out of it. Yeah, and, and it was over by lunch on morning one. Or well, maybe not over as a, as a test match, but in terms of that, that that jolt of adrenaline they would have had after the, the one-day win in Hamilton and claiming the Chapel Hadley Trophy, the fact that it was Brendan McCullum's 100th test, of course, he made a duck in the first innings. The sting went out of the game, and they needed the sting to be in the game. They needed it to be Australia under a huge amount of pressure and, and, and start to apply some of the... The lessons that you know start to try and uh, turn on turn on their head what happened in England last year. Brendan McCullum talked about exploiting what occurred in England, and they never got a chance to. They were never really in the contest after no. day one, and and that was deeply disappointing. And whether they can bounce back in time, Brad Haddon said after the World Cup that he felt that New Zealand had a psychological break when it came to beating Australia in the big moments. And Brendan McCullum was asked about that yesterday, and he didn't agree. Well, he was asked about the idea of, what can you beat Australia? Do you believe you can beat Australia when it matters? And he said, of course we can. Yeah, of course. And you'd expect him to say that. But this you would expect only... him to say that, but he's he's symbolic of the problem in a lot of ways. Now, I, I wrote a piece on Wisden India uh, the day before recording this podcast, which is looking at, at, at his career and why it's kind of odd that he would choose to end his career in a test match against Australia when that's probably been his least successful in all forms of cricket, um, that particular matchup. You know, career test average of 38, average against Australia is more like 25. Um, he's only passed 54 times, I think, against Australia, um, one century. Each of those 50-plus scores has been in a in a dead match, you know, second innings. Second innings, In yeah. a match that's already gone, you know, where they're 300 behind and, and it's really just sort of a net session. So... He's just—he's never put in a performance against Australia um, in a Test match. He has in one-day cricket. He has in T20 cricket. But when it comes to that longest form, and he's batting at number five, you know, he—he he doesn't really have the uh, the numbers, the record to suggest that he should be batting at number five. He's, he's made—he's made five or six massive scores in Test cricket, and then um, a whole heap of low scores. If you've got—if you've got what four 200-plus scores. He's got two scores of 180 plus, um, 195 against three double centuries and the yep. triple century. Now, if you've got those scores of that magnitude, that shows your ability. And then you're averaging under 40 in your career. That shows 
um, that, that you haven't performed the rest of the time. He's made nearly a fifth of his career runs in his five biggest innings. Yeah, that, that, that stat in your piece there was the most profound for mine. It's that he's, he's done the vast bulk of the work in such a short part of his career. It's, so much of his career has been middling to to poor, but having said that, he's made a huge contribution to New Zealand cricket as a leader as well, so we don't want to diminish his contribution more broadly, but there is a disconnect there, and and, and likewise with Mark Craig, he's the other player who I'd probably you know, point the finger at as far as someone who has performed for New Zealand since he came into the Test squad a couple of years ago, he's got really good numbers, yet in his now four Test matches against Australia, especially Test 1, 2 and, and 4, though that being in Brisbane, Perth and, and Wellington, he has been absolutely toyed with, especially the way he bowled on day two when they really needed the spinner on day two you know the conditions were getting better to bat they needed someone to hold up an end exactly the way that we spoke about nathan lyon earlier in the pod and and to be dangerous i mean you're holding up an end but you're also a threat and you know craig bowls two short balls and over that get cut for boundaries the australians are very comfortable facing him because no they know they, they just wait and and he will give them four balls In absolutely no consistency so the the voges 90s and 190s both spoke to that like where he received half it was like a replica of the the, the episode in the 90s it was two half trackers and a full toss the same thing happened when voges was in the 190s that's a time when your spinner should be at his best and most penetrative when you know that the batsman's trying to find a way to get off you know 99 or 199 or whatever it is and and the, and the opposite is true in his case the odd thing is that mark craig keeps making most of the runs um for New Zealand against Australia, so maybe they should just be batting him at six and not letting him bowl. Casting forward, Jeff. Now we've got. Well, he couldn't be batting any worse than Corey Anderson, and uh, you know maybe Anderson plays as a specialist bowler and Craig plays as a batsman. Well, likewise, Bracewell. Bracewell looks technically one of the most astute players in the New Zealand eleven. Yet he's uh, hanging out with the bowlers down the bottom of the list. But you think the, the, the fact that he's uh, got that sort of technique, he should try and remodel himself as a batting all rounder as he gets older, matures in the game. As, t- as players tend to do. Mm. Jeff, we probably should start wrapping up. In doing so, we do go to Christchurch in a couple of days off the Hagley Park. It's a new test ground. They've only played a couple of test matches there. Of course, Christchurch having mm. um, suffered from a, an awful earthquake four years ago and indeed another one in the last couple of days. So that provides a broader context to the to the contest we'll be seeing. The trophy's already won on the fields, but there are still plenty of little subplots. There always is any test match that Australia plays in. There's plenty of storylines. Peter Siddle, as we said before, may not come up. It's been said that he will only play if he's 100% fit. They are not going to carry him into this test match. Mm-hmm. So that might provide an opportunity for Chad Sayers. If that, you can't rule that out, I think. I mean, I think Jackson Bird bowled well in the second dig, but whether they want to consider Pattinson and Sayers to come in mm-hmm. in favour of Bird and Siddle, I, I don't think that would be a, a terrible call. But if Siddle were fit, um, there'd be much more chance, I reckon, of the Bird swap. You know, say Pattinson's not ready. I think, I think if they can drop Jackson Bird, they might just do it. Um, just to give Sayers a run. You know, the old you can't you can't have a guy named Chad in the squad and not give him a go in the team, surely. Yeah. The, the hanging Chad. The hanging Chad. I I was waiting for you or I was gonna go there if you didn't, so I'm glad you did first. Pato's gotta come in. James Pattinson is a if he's right, though. Uh, well, uh, yesterday Smith said that he was bowling fast, which to me is indic- in the nets, that is. So it's indicative of the fact That's that they job, yeah. want him in the side. We talked about Joe Burns earlier today. He needs runs, as does Mitchell Marsh. He made a blob here. His test record at number six isn't what it should be, despite how well he's bowling. He's still got stuff he needs to do to prove himself long term. And last but not least, if Australia win at Christchurch and win the series 2-0, believe it or not, they'll go to number one in the world in the ICC rankings. That's now, yeah, they're Jim Maxwell. Mm. Now, Steve Smith and, and, and Darren Lehman and co are not trying to suggest for a moment they haven't got work to do as a side, and they're still a fairly young, relatively inexperienced lineup. But 
due to the way the four-year ICC ranking cycle works. It means that results registered in 2012 and 2013 still count towards the, the results that we see today in, the, in that table. So, and I don't you know. never have a team at number one who everybody says, oh, they really deserve to be at number one. You know, India goes number one and everyone goes, oh, they just got pumped in England. England goes number one and everyone says, oh, they just got smashed in South Africa. You know, whatever it is. There's, there's always a series that someone lost recently, which means they shouldn't be number one in the eyes of the general public. Which means that I'm not entirely sure how much that counts for. I know they have, there's financial bonuses built into it and they always talk about their their corporate plan for, the, for all Australian sides to be number one in the ICC rankings and whatever else, but... It'll provide a little bit of context to the game, if nothing else, because Australia has, of course, wrapped up the series already. But we'll be down there in Christchurch. Brendan McCullum's last test match. Oh, of that's course. The how could I? How could I forget it? Brendan McCullum's last test match. That's that's the real story this week. The story is that New Zealand need to shake off this. Um, you know, I hesitate to use words that annoy me about teams who don't win games that perhaps they should win. Um, but they need to to shake off this malaise which has affected them when they play Australia, and they need to win a goddamn test match against Australia in McCullum's last test, and he needs to contribute. If they can win a test match against Australia in Christchurch, it'll be the first time they've beat Australia in a test in this country since 1993, giving you a sense of just how dominant the series has been, how one-sided it's been since then. But and we'll also be... how infrequently we've come over to play them. Yeah, true enough, it has been since 2010 since the last test series, but still, it is it is a noteworthy, a noteworthy marker. But McCullum will need to turn that around in his final test. We'll be there, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, keep reading what we're writing on the ABC Grandstand website and various other forms of social media. You'll see us there. And, uh, of course, we'll be back on the Final Word podcast from Christchurch the day after the next Test match.